Johnson here, freelance writer, player of games, writer of words, recorder of videos, and tabletop role-playing aficionado. Welcome to my weekly behind-the-scenes DM-only live stream in which I build, write, and prepare for our next session of Rime of the Frostmaiden. <laughs> if you're playing characters Valrobin, Frey, Celeste, Edmund, or Thimbleweed, this video is not meant for you and will be full of spoilers for our campaign. Go away. Up to the rest of you. Welcome aboard. We stream our D&D sessions live on YouTube every Friday evening. You can watch all of our D&D live series as well as reviews and Let's Plays on my YouTube page. Page, you should read channel, and read weekly session recaps at RogueWatson.com. You can follow me on Twitter at RogueWatson and join our official Discord server with invite link in the description below. And you can support the channel at Patreon.com slash RogueWatson. For our campaign, we use Roll20.net. For streaming, I use open broadcaster software with Streamlabs. Starting on time today. How exciting is that? I rolled a nat 20 on the baby handling check. Uh, unlike yesterday's Let's Play stream. Hello, Michael, Farty, Nathan, Lord Anubis, I presume. Jerome, Forbreezy, Pegleg, I'll give you a shout-out even though you had to leave. <laughs> Stan, good to see you. Uh, so, we need to actually talk about the Mountain Climb quest, since we kind of didn't get there <laughs> during our last session. Um, and I already talked about uh, how... <laughs> the random encounter I had constructed for the the one random encounter for the path between Tourmaline and Kelvin's Cairn, the players thought was a quest hook, which is fair, and now I may have to turn that into a full-on uh, side quest because I have created uh, basically an interesting adventure hook into the Dwarven Valley, which does not exist in the Rhyme of the Frost Maiden at all. Uh, even though the Dwarven Valley is uh, apparently a major part of uh, the Forgotten Realms lore, and it's, uh, you know, an actual place with Dwarven, you know, tunnels and mines and homes and could be rife for uh, adventure, yet it is glossed over in the campaign book. Uh, so I created a little bit of a tease, like, oh yeah, the Dwarves are finding, you know, the, the Shardle and the Black Ice, and that's probably bad. And the players are like, oh, that's probably bad. We should go there. And I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> you could, I guess. Uh, and as I mentioned in last week's Frostside chat, it all came down to one role that I had Edmund do because he, uh, because of his player secret, is very interested in uh, Shardland and Black Ice. And I made him roll a persuasion check, uh, I think with advantage, I don't remember, against the dwarves. Because the dwarves were still very... Uh, uh, you know, they don't recognize the authority of the Ten Towns. They're very much themselves. You know, they're not hostile, but they're not friendly, is how I was uh, playing that situation. And so ultimately they rebuffed them. Now the players could have really put their foot down and followed the dwarves and really gone after it. But I think that's kind of that uh, unspoken agreement between DM and players where they can kind of tell when I'm putting up roadblocks. But in this case, I think they accepted about why these roadblocks would make sense versus me just saying, oh, I don't have content for this. Because I would have absolutely done, I would have switched gears completely, had to rename the session from Mountain Climb Part 1 to just, I don't know what it would have been because it wasn't any mountain climb. And then we would have gone right into the Dwarven Valley and then maybe done an adventure from there. Uh, I do have, as part of one of the DM's uh, Rhyme of the Frostmaiden uh, DM's Guild... Adventures I had. I'm sorry, I'm looking through my folders. What was it called? Adventure bundle. Ooh, who did this? Uh, it, it has a it has a dungeon for uh, Halls of the Black Ice specifically. Design this. And I, I can't see what I'm looking at either because I've only got it tuned to roll twenty moments. Uh, by Daniel Kahn and Michael Rosenthal. Uh, I believe it's called the Adventure Bundle, and it, it includes like three uh, side quests that you can insert into Rhyme because they all take place in Icewind Dale and specifically are designed for uh, different levels and different areas and exploring. Now, one of them I'm almost for sure going to use, which involves the Goliaths as a side quest, which is really cool. Another one I may use, which involves an underwater dungeon going from uh, to the uh, Isle of Solstice. The third one I wasn't going to use, which is uh, the... Falls of Black Eyes in the Dwarven Valley, but now I'm like, oh shit, uh, I may have to actually use this map. Unfortunately, the actual dungeon um, involves... You know what? Let me let me set up... You'll give me one second. I will set it up so you can actually see what I'm looking at right now. Those of you listening to the podcast, sorry. <laughs> You're not going to be able to see this. Uh, let's see. Window capture... 
is a DMs Guild window. Let's add source. And we're going to put that right above. Okay, this might work. Uh, so just for a moment, you're going to see what I'm looking at. I'm going to switch off of roll 20. And uh, this is what I'm looking at for uh, what I would have done. <laughs> and, and what I probably will still do because they're interested in, in following up on this. Um, but this is from the Adventure Bundle. I don't know if you can actually purchase these separately or not. But one of them is called Danger in the Dwarven Valley. And it involves an entire um, really nice full-color battle map. And you can't... Sorry, my, my, my graphics are kind of covering the last uh, third of the image. But uh, it's got a whole adventure that's in the Dwarven Valley in the... Uh, the, this halls, uh, unfortunately, the actual, what I would maybe use is the map, but unfortunately the entire thing is actually geared towards a, a druid that is uh, creating a bunch of, uh, it's been corrupted and has been, it, it's one of the frost druids basically it's supposed to be, and it's a bunch of uh, plant monsters. So unfortunately the theme doesn't actually fit and the dungeon itself even has like painted on like plant growth going crazy. So I'm not sure how much I would be able to use it because what I would want to do is turn it into a, um, almost like the first Resident Evil movie where you're like going down and you don't know like what's going on and you go in there and it's just like full of, you know, evil basically and you're trying to figure out like what happened and all that and that could be a really cool scenario that would build upon the dangers of Shardland and Black Ice. Um, probably what's going to happen because I've put that in the player's mind as as a danger that's going on but I kind of rebuffed them in terms of going in there is maybe after they they go around, they do... You know, they finish Mountain Climb, they do Care Conig. Probably they go down to Care Deneval because I did give them that quest from Korra about, hey, can you check on my son? Uh, maybe after dealing with that and really discovering the dangers or the potential power of Shardalan via um, the, uh, the, that Black Swords, uh, whatever that cult is called, uh, maybe from there they will be like, oh shit, we need to really go check on these dwarves. Or I can have a dwarf eventually find them and be like, you know, he's maybe part corrupted or he's dying or something be like oh you've got to come help us we're so sorry we rebuffed you and you know please come save our clan or something so i could still insert that as a quest frankly i don't really feel the need to add almost any new content uh to the adventure specifically in the first third because remember we're dividing up the adventure between three different kind of acts or storylines the first one being uh just bumming around 10 towns doing a bunch of quests kind of getting to know the people and then ultimately starting to seed the, the Dwergar threat, which, which culminates with the Shardland Dragon. And then the second act will be more about the Arcane Brotherhood and learning about what they were doing here and uh, ultimately leading them to Valish Gaunt being a big villain with Ness Lantimere and how they essentially found Aethrin and pissed off Aurel and did all that. Um, which the whole time I'm kind of seeding the fact that Shardland and Black Ice is an important thing that's affecting people. That was originally from... Uh, Ethern that broke off. So I don't know if I want to put this in the first act or the second act, basically. Because I feel like I've got a ton of content for that first act already. And that first act is pretty much tier one, but I think I would include level five if, if, we're, if we're assuming that they make it to, uh, to Sunblight at level five. So I may use something like this later, in other words, but probably not for at least a couple uh, more side quests as it is. So we'll switch back to our usual programming. Back to roll 20. All right, because we need to talk to right now, talk about uh, the mountain climb quest and Kelvin's Cairn. So hilariously, even though last session was mountain climb part one, uh, we didn't actually make it to the damn mountain yet. When are we gonna get to the fireworks factory? Uh, we did not make it there this session, but we are going to make it this week. Um, what I have planned, first of all, I think this is a really cool area because it's so flavorful for, uh, you know, Icewind Dale, the classic like snowy mountain and the, and the dangers that can arise there. It just, if you're going to run Rhyme of the Frost Maiden and you're picking and choosing which quest to run, I can't imagine anybody would not choose to run Mountain Climb in some fashion or some way. Like, it's just, it works so well. The only trick is, uh, you would have to have individual encounter maps because the overarching map 
is kind of that it's cool it's that big you know side view of the map but you can't have battles on this map itself this is the actual mountain map so uh, what i've had to do is basically add some additional kind of encounter map so think of this as like the overland travel map and then you do the like you know final fantasy brr, 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 and you go in and actually have you know the encounters um the first thing that they're going to do is have to get to the base camp now it says in the book and i will catch up on the chat in a second um that they have to actually find the base camp first which involves a i think a group survival check go to the actual mountain climb section Uh, let's see, mountain climb, so we're skipping, we journeyed already, let's see, climbing Kelvin's Cairn, before they can follow their quarry up Kelvin's Cairn, the characters must locate Garrett's base camp at the foot of the mountain, now if they had a guide, um, the guide can lead them there, but they don't have a guide because they left from Tourmaline, uh, they don't have the dog either, so without help of any sort, the characters can spend eight hours searching for the camp on their own, Finding it with a successful DC-15 survival group check. If the group check fails, they can repeat it after another eight hours of looking. Now, the weird thing is, uh, as written, there's no penalty for this. It's just a bunch of checks. So, uh, as a DM, you would have to say, okay, well, you know, it's night. you got a camp. Maybe I'll roll for an encounter. You know, that all seems a little fiddly. Um, and, and it's, frankly, just more work for the DM. So, what I'm probably going to do is say... Uh, you know, you need to all search. I'm not sure why it's a group check here versus just letting whoever the leader is make that survival check. Um, I mean, I guess technically everybody can search together, but I feel like there's that makes it harder for the players unless they're more, you know, a party full of rangers or something. Um, and if I'm remembering how group checks work, I believe the entire party basically makes a skill check. Let's see, is this actually something I can look up? Ability checks, group checks. Yes, it is. Let's see. To make a group ability check, everyone in the group makes the ability check. If at least half the group succeeds, the whole group succeeds. Otherwise, the group fails. They don't come up very often. They're most useful when all the characters succeed or fail as a group. Okay, so specifically when adventurers are navigating something, the characters can avoid hazards. Um, it doesn't say whether you round up or down. Does anybody know the answer to that offhand? I need to round Send them to you. Oh, sorry, I'm reading. Um, what are we sending on Discord? Oh, Dwarven Valley Maps. Okay. Sweet. I will, I'll check those out, um, after the stream. I, I, in the future, I do plan on maybe adding some Dwarven Valley, uh, content. But, uh, for now, focused on Mountain Climb. Uh, so if you have mountain maps, I'd be interested in that. I will show you the maps that I've got for now. Um, so for uh, group check, uh, everybody makes a survival check. Um, I don't know if... So if at least half the group succeeds, that means it would have to be... If there's five players, you'd have to have three. Because two is not half. Three would be more than half. So you'd have to have three successes out of five people making survival checks. Uh, and what I would do to make it easy is just say, if you succeed, you find the camp, no problem. If you fail, um, it takes you longer, and maybe everybody has to make a con save, or you incur a level of exhaustion because you're tired, and then you find the camp. You know, I'm not going to turn this into a big, like, oh, you got to wait another couple hours, and I could roll for stuff, and blah, blah, blah. I'm just going to make it a very simple, like... You succeed, you get there, you fail, you get there, but there's a penalty involved. So I think that's uh, how I'm going to work that. We can actually check everybody's survival checks. Uh, what, what would be a good DC for this, by the way? It says 15. Uh, I think in the... Yeah, 15, which is pretty challenging for people that aren't into survival. Well, Robin's got a plus one. Ray has a plus zero. Kind of weird, the Wildling Barbarian's got a plus zero survival. Celeste has a plus one. But feeling Thimbleweed's going to be very pissed at the rest of the party. Uh, Edmund, weirdly, has a plus two. Wise Artificer. 
And Thimbleweed has a plus six. He is the ranger. So, odds are they will not succeed, <laughs> given the survival check. Modified by... Yeah, I mean, weather definitely... That's true. Weather makes it hard. I mean, it's dark. It's it's nasty weather. And I haven't really imposed any, like, blizzards or anything like that on their way. I had that one encounter because I knew I was going to have all, all these other challenges. Like, this really is a gauntlet of events, which I think is pretty fun. This is essentially a linear dungeon crawl. By which I mean, um, you walk and it's a series of events that happen to you. There's not a whole lot of um, exploration the players can actually do here. Um, which is why I'm inserting um, a little bit of exploration at the base camp. And then we do have a mini, mini dungeon with the frozen cave once they actually reach uh, to the top of there. So, yeah, we're like in 15. Um, what do we think about the... Uh, if you... I know, and Jason, I agree. That's that's why it's weird that the, the text actually calls for a group check, because it's like, well, why wouldn't you just have the leader, like the person who is well who is skilled in navigating, uh, let him just take the reins and lead everybody? Although it does specifically say group check. But see, that that's a group check where it's like you're all moving through the area trying to avoid dangers. Um, there's not really a danger here you're avoiding other than you're, you're basically just trying to find this camp in a decent amount of time. That's what the check does. And you find this camp before you all get tired from just marching around this freaking mountain in the harsh elements. Uh, in which case, I don't think a group check would be necessary there versus just letting, you know, the ranger take point and be able to do that. So, uh, yeah, group check. Well, I'll tell you about my avalanche rules in a second. So... I'm thinking I may change that to uh, the leader makes lead explorer makes a DC 15 survival check. And then if they fail, which funny is that if they fail, everybody gets screwed because that means that you have not located the camp in a decent enough time to where now you all have to make, uh, I'm thinking maybe con saves rather than just instantly give them exhaustion. Make it so that some people who are hardier can just be like, oh, well, this is a pain in the ass, but we're going to power through it. And that way you've got, you know, a save before you actually have to worry about exhaustion. Because I know exhaustion is pretty big. Con saves in this party are much better than their survival checks, too. Alright, so I'm thinking... Um, yeah, and, most, and obviously Thimbleweed would be the one with a plus six. Which, what, gives them like a little better than 50% chance to pass? Nobody else is proficient in survival. No, only Thimbleweed, and he's got a plus six. Everybody else is like a plus one or a plus two. So if they fail, they're still going to make it to the base camp. It's just going to take them probably like an extra hour or two of searching or however I want to flavor it. Uh, and then I would maybe make everybody make a con save against exhaustion, which what would be the right con save for that? It wouldn't probably be 15. I'm thinking maybe either like 10 or 13. On save for exhaustion. That gives them another, uh, kind of another barrier before that. Maybe I'm being too nice, but it seems like you would be, even if it took you a while, if you were just more hardy, you could kind of withstand the elements. Uh, so yeah, that'll be getting to the mountain. And then we've got the actual base camp that we're trying to locate. So the base camp, this is one where I actually do have a map for. I decided to spice things up because in the text, um, the only thing you find here are the rest of the sled dogs. I am I put a sled here, but I'm, I didn't put any dogs here. Uh, and what I did put was a snowy owl bear. <laughs> so we're going to switch to that map now. Base camp. So, this is a really good map that's from one of my favorite artists on the Roll20 Marketplace that you can find at Quick Encounters Snow and Ice is what it's called. It's on the Roll20 Marketplace, which is a really great resource for finding uh, random encounter maps. And I use this artist, Gabriel Picard, um, for a lot of my Tomb of Annihilation encounters. You can see I still have Quick Encounters Jungle Ruins and Jungles. This one, I don't know how much I'll use some of these maps, but this one in particular called Winter Valley... Uh, just fits fantastically for a base camp. And I've got the dynamic lighting set up where it's all going to be more 
you know, like you're approaching a mountain and there's this little valley nestled in here with these tents and it just, it fit perfectly with what I was looking for. So I turned this into an actual map and an encounter um, with the caveat that it doesn't have to be a combat encounter if the players play their cards right. So basically they will approach the camp and they will see this giant lumbering snowy owl bear rooting around and basically just destroying everything. And it's going to be their choice on how they want to handle this. They could try and just sneak past it. They can try and um, they can try and pretend it's a beast and use some kind of calming beast spells or something. I need to see what all they've got. Uh, but keep in mind, this is not actually a beast. It is a monstrosity, which is is a weird thing. So like a lot of be you know monsters that look like they're just animals and have the intelligence of an animal. It's got intelligence of three. It is technically not a quote unquote beast in terms of the mechanics. Uh, and maybe they, most players would know that an owl bear is technically a monstrosity rather than a beast. <laughs> so uh, it, they would actually be able to use that. Um, maybe they could. Uh, yeah, I'm sure Edmund will try to treat it like the polar bears. Although again, it's not a beast; it's a monstrosity. So, but it's got an intelligence of three. So it really going to depend on how the players want to play this. If they want to really play it smart and use tactics and, and play their way right, then I would maybe let them get past it. Uh, without combat, but this thing is hungry, and it's been, you know, driven in desperation from the the elements to where it's just hunting around this mountain looking for any kind of sustenance. So, uh, most likely, as soon as it sees the players, it's going to charge and attack and roll for initiative, and it's going to turn into a combat encounter. Um, and it's only one... You know, this is not meant to be a big fight. Uh, it does have a mess of hit points, and yes, I did roll for its hit points. Um... I think I roll. Where did I roll? I don't think these things normally have this many hit points. Did I prep this before last session? I must have, which means it's not going to be on here anymore. Wait a whole session, yeah. Um, but these things have an average hit points of fifty-nine, and I rolled seventy-four for its hit points, so it's actually pretty damn meaty. It does have multi-attack with beak and claws. Um, would probably not fight to the death, however, which a lot of these monsters wouldn't necessarily do that. So that's the thing. If it turns into a combat fight, it could retreat after a while, but not meant to be a huge, nasty fight. And yes, the players could do something to shut it down. Um, at level three, I don't know how much crowd control we've got. Suggestion, I don't think works on... I can understand you. Yeah, you couldn't understand it. <laughs> and I don't think... It's not a beast. I don't think Thimbleweed can use any of his... Ranger spells, because he's got speak with animals. But it specifically says beasts. Sense. Such a willing beast. That's not going to work. And with nature. I'll do the land within three miles of you. Uh, so, yeah, I don't think they've got any ways of dealing with that. So this is not necessarily a forced fight, but could very well be a fight. Not going to pay Chris back by giving them a Yeti. Oh, Stan, the Yetis are coming. Yes, Jay. Yeah, as Jason mentioned, the uh, there are yet. You don't you don't put a mountain quest in Rhyme of the Frost Maiden and not throw a Yeti or two at the players. That's basically the boss fight of this dungeon, which is pretty cool. Um, so this is going to be you know again designed to soften the players up, which. They kind of already had that, keep in mind. I had that little Shardland Berserker fight that softened them up just a bit. They did, they did a pretty good job of not expending too many resources. I didn't do a whole ton of damage. That was only one enemy. And this is uh, another case of just one enemy. Um, the more important thing here is that they will find uh, journal entries, which is a classic, you know, designer uh, storytelling device because that's how they learn more about what happened here. Um, all the provisions and stuff will be destroyed. There are not going to be any lootable things that you can find here, because they've the people either took everything with them, or the bear destroyed most of it. But because this is important story stuff, the players will find a travel log by uh, one of the adventurers who was a Paralu Fishfinger, which I believe was a halfling cleric. And that will explain basically what happened since these adventures arrived to when they got here to the base camp, which those of you that watched our Tomb of Annihilation campaign will remember I did something similar with uh, the Company of the Yellow Banner. I included a bunch of handouts. The players could um, 
basically make checks on like a sending stone type thing to get information of. And that one was fun, but I realized that they got all this information, you know, within sessions around 20 or 30 or something. And then they didn't get the payoff until way like 40 or 50 sessions later because uh, the adventurers, you know, are in that final dungeon. That's where they find them, find the remains at least. This case should work a lot better because you're going to get this journal entry and then hopefully like by the next two sessions as you're exploring this dungeon, you will find those uh, party members and, and, you know, get more of that story. So this should work a lot better. Uh, I literally just created this in Roll20, by the way. I put, I have these uh, paper parchment things from that Vile Tables uh, subscription pack that I used to build our landing page called Vile, Table, Vile Tiles colon Tabletops. And I threw that on there, threw some text on there, and then literally just did print screen, which is why I can still see the graph paper underneath because I got pretty lazy about it. Um, and created a little travel log that the one of the characters made and basically talked about, um, you know, how they made it to Icewind Dale, uh, how everything was really bad. Um, one of the the Goliath warriors trying to find uh, what's the name, uh, Oy Oya Minartok. Uh, which is a Goliath werebear, which is supposed to be a, like a rite of power for Goliaths to use. So I thought that'd be a fun tease on there and then maybe later introduce this character. Uh, and then they receive that tip uh, that Dazan hires them to go to Kelvin's Cairn. Uh, and then they go, they journey across the map towards East Haven and they go north to Kerkonig. They pick up a guide, which is going to be Garrett, uh, and then go to uh, Kelvin's Cairn at the base camp. And that's basically all the information they get here. They get the actual letter from uh design that i created that they you know kept within the pages and i'm also considering um adding a map which is literally going to be this map as kind of a fun like oh you also find a map tucked into the pages like this was the guides map and then i could even try and i and i'm Debating on whether to include the actual blue trail or not. So everything you see on here, minus where it says base camp, because I just added that to the token layer, is on the GM layer. So the players can't see any of this. They just see this map. So I thought it'd be interesting if the trail was actually like the guide, Garrett, like pointing out like, here's the route we can take to get up to the top of the mountain, which is the safe way to get up there. And then I can have the players go do, 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 as they kind of follow this path. And that's basically spells the fact that like this is a pretty linear area that you can kind of follow um essentially this the one trail you can take to get up here so i'm thinking i might actually do that and include this map as uh part of those handouts they find so they get a lot of information out of this camp which means i actually don't want them to sneak past the owlbear do i because i want them to get this information so i you know what i may do i specifically don't do this usually which i i don't them on the battle map too early with events because I don't want to push them into a fight. What I may do here is the opposite. I may actually put them on the map earlier than when I usually do that because I want to encourage them to fight the Owlbear because I do want them to loot what's in this camp. And hopefully they would realize that's probably a good play for them as well uh, to be able to see you know, if there's any interesting stuff to get in here. And this isn't really a stealthy party anyway. I don't think they would necessarily sneak past it. Uh, so that is going to be their first big encounter if it acts like a beast then it is a beast. i know it's it's a weird it's a weird thing like there are creatures that have beast intelligence but are technically not mechanically beasts they are monstrosities which is like if they're i don't know just slightly mutated versions of normal beasts then they are considered not beasts they are monstrosities and owlbear is certainly one of them uh maybe for the express version of rangers not being able to use their thing against them so after that, we can start climbing the mountain. The first event is they meet, a they meet a bunch of mountain goats. Now, these are normal mountain goats. And this is a case where uh, you could use some of your ranger abilities. And I would probably encourage that. Uh, you know, I thought about, oh, I could make these like, you know, the evil RO ones where it's got the glowing blue eyes and they could do the frost breath. But we just had that snowy owl bear encounter. And I think the goats would be... What, what the funny thing is the players are probably going to be... Um, paranoid about these goats about them doing something but i would certainly allow it if the if uh you know thimbleweed or somebody wanted to use you know speak with beasts or use animal handling to calm them down or something to walk up and try to converse with them and then gain some information which would be you know the goats aren't you know they're fucking goats but maybe they could say like yes some folks passed through here uh you know however long ago i need to figure out my timeline but i don't think it was 
I don't think it's supposed to be very long. Um, I think it was that they passed through... They were in that store a week ago, so it probably took them... In fact, I've got it on my travel log, don't I? Yeah, sort of did this work. Three days ago, they made it to Kerr Conig. Two days ago, they made it to the... Uh, basically, the mountain at the base camp. So, really, they've probably been here at max. Uh, I don't know what... I didn't have a timeline from when they left the base camp to when they climbed up the mountain. So, anywhere between one and two days, they've been up here. Because I couldn't have it be too long, because I think there's still... You know, the surviving adventures in that frozen cave being batted around by yetis. Like, she can't have been there for a week. So it's got to be, you know, within probably 24 to 48 hours or something. Uh, the goats aren't going to be able to know that that time necessarily uh, that closely, but they can at least say it wasn't long ago uh, that they passed through here. And maybe that they're, maybe to tease the fact that they're like clumsy and watch their step or something funny. Then we'll weed the ghost whisperer. Maybe the bear is fighting some sled dogs. Oh, that's true. Mmm. Mmm. That's an interesting idea, Jason. Maybe the bear is fighting some sled dogs. So I wasn't going to do the dogs, but that would compel. Oh, man. Mmm. I don't want to have, what I don't want to do is uh, any kind of gore or violence against dogs. I don't like that. I know many of, most of my players don't like that. I think most people don't like that. Um, you know, it's funny that you can, you can do horrible things to humans, but with dogs you're involved, everybody's like, what the fuck? Um, so, you know, it wouldn't be like a grizzly scene or anything. Eh, throw a bear pun in there. Um, <laughs> but... I, I do I don't mind the idea of of having it be you know like they're growling and the bear is kind of coming up and being you know scary and it looks like this bear is gonna fuck up these dogs maybe there's only one dog left or uh, you know a pair of dogs and not that the others are dead but that they managed to get away and this one's kind of caught you know got its collar in there yeah that would be interesting the problem is what do I do with this fucking dog then do I have the dog just like join the player you know just, you've got this dog is the other like it's a cool idea but then the player's like are they gonna adopt this dog you can't put it in like your backpack or something it's a fucking dog <laughs> um that's my only concern i guess you could leave it at the base camp and be like or, or, or let it go and it would like run away and, and presumably you know go back from where the others came or something which would be it would know its way maybe back to Kirkonig. but uh i don't that's that's interesting i may actually include that i'm gonna think about it some more but um, that would be a great way to kind of force the players into a fight. Could easily throw. I don't think I have a dog token, but do I? The equivalent of it. There's not a beast section here, is there? I'd have to probably just use a wolf. I think dogs do have their own stat blocks block somewhere. That is a very wolfy looking wolf image unfortunately so i could probably find some kind of uh you know malamute or something he uses a dog token but that could be interesting i mean and and you know the the adventure as written is supposed to give you a dog uh ally Let's see is it just called dog in the what is the fucking or is it, it's mastiff isn't it mastiff is the stat block Yeah, so I could probably just use a massive stat block. Although I thought Mountain Climb does say dog somewhere. Oh no, it does say use the wolf stat block. Interesting. Okay, I could use the wolf stat block, I guess. I'd still want to find a different token, though. Wolves are a bit stronger. <laughs> they wouldn't have the frost breath. That's something I added in there. Okay, yeah, I could use... I could use either one. Wolf just has the ability to knock them down. It's got pack tactics. Uh, Mastiff does not have that. I mean, I'm not worried about giving them... I'm not worried about giving them like a... like a, Oh, you get an extra NPC ally or something. I'm just worried about the upkeep between like... Oh, God, we can't take this dog up the mountain. Like, what do we do with this fucking dog? Or or maybe if they want to have it... You know, one of the companions bonds with a fucking dog, then I could... I should just let that happen. Like, if you want to have an ally... That's one thing that we've never really done very well in our campaigns. We've had... Um, you know, obviously sentient allies with our party, but in terms of like animal friends, they usually don't, they're, they're usually more of a, 
uh, like flavor thing, like the flying monkeys in Tomb of Annihilation or something, where it's just kind of a funny joke. It's not really a mechanical like ally that's actually with you, because I feel like if that's the case, you're probably playing like a ranger or the artificer, uh, whatever the one that has the pet. You know, there's actually like better mechanics for that versus having that dog with you. But, you know, if it's a small thing, like it's a squirrel or a bird or something, you don't have to, you know, a flying monkey, I didn't have to have a token for that necessarily, but I feel like a dog, it kind of, uh, you'd, you'd have to keep up with a token if they want to have it. But, you know, if that ends up being a fun little thing, and that's a cool story, like you can save the dog from the owl bear. Okay, I'm, I'm liking this more and more. You're kind of convincing me. Create a token using a pick up a sled dog and give it to the mastiff on the, the wolf stat block too much. It's like 12 of them later. Yeah, that's true. Um, I don't see them necessarily doing the whole sled dog thing. I see them more like uh, either eventually they get that wagon back and they hitch, you know, axe beaks to it or something, or they just get on axe beaks like tauntauns and, and roam around on those. That just seems a lot more interesting and fun and fantasy to me than just having a bunch of sled dogs and having to keep up with sled dogs too. That's a lot of mouths to feed. Your brother, yeah. <laughs> Which was never really, never really came up much again. Uh, so yeah, the goats, I'm basically just letting that, the one thing I was going to do is if they really like just either pissed off the goats or treated them badly or got close to them without trying to calm them down, the goats would like bleat at them as they got near and that maybe causes them a deck save or they slip and fall and take like, you know, 1d6 damage or something funny. So it's kind of a mini trap if they, if they technically don't really do anything, but I'm assuming they will try to engage with them in some way. Uh, but maybe not, who knows? I mean, it's hard to you know, assume what players are going to do. All right, for the Avalanche, which is the next thing that comes up, I'm actually going to pull up another DMs Guild thing for this. Where was that? And this one is from Eventier Games, uh, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden DM Guide, which is another good quality product. I'm not using too much up, but uh, if you if you obviously watched our first session, I used that uh, Foaming Mugs uh, quest from that. I want to flip on the, the DMs Guild window one more time. Okay. So, this one is, and this is separated into chapters, but I think I opened the one that's got all of them in here. Uh, where was Avalanche? There we go. Wilderness Survival. So, this one has what I think is a way better system for Avalanche. So, as written in the book, we're going to have to go back to this. Go back to what the book is. i got to swap all these windows around. Alright, Mountain Climb. You guys are still watching the DM's good window, that's fine. Alright, so the avalanche, see avalanches, it seems really weird. It doesn't... When an avalanche occurs, all nearby creatures must roll initiative. Twice each round, on initiative counts 10 and 0. So you put everybody in initiative order, and then on 10 and 0, the avalanche travels 300 feet until it can travel no more. When an avalanche moves, any creature in its space moves along with it and falls prone. The creature must make a DC 15 strength saving throw, taking 1d10 bludgeoning damage on a failed saver, half as much damage on a successful one. And it moves, yeah, 300 feet a turn, which basically means it's just going to come hit you. It, it turns the whole thing into essentially a single strength save, and you take 1d10 bludgeoning damage. Now, you can get buried under it, in which case uh, you have to be freed with a DC 15 athletics check, and you're blinded and restrained, but there's no other, you know, if it's not in the middle of combat, like, who cares? Like, eventually you're going to get that person out. There's no real, you know, mitigating circumstances or failure there. So I found that not very satisfying. Instead, what I found was in uh, Eventier Games' DM's Guide bundle, there are, it turns the avalanche into a skill challenge. Now, I know skill challenges are divisive for good reason like they they can over you know over mechanicalize uh gamifying too much things that maybe you want the players to be able to think outside the box and use different tools for rather than just saying okay use this skill use this skill 
um, and you don't want to use them too often, but what they can do is give you a range of uh, successes and penalties, which in this case I think works very well because it gives the players multiple checks, and then depending on how many successes you make is how well you're able to um, mitigate the damage and the terrible things that happen to you during the avalanche. So I don't know if I'm going to use this exactly as written, and I'm really interested to hear all of your thoughts on uh, how this avalanche plays out. But according to Eventier Games, uh, first you set the DC for the skill checks and saving throws. It recommends DC 10 for easy, 13 for moderate, and 15 for hard. One thing I would look at is maybe even changing the DCs for each check, depending on how hard or difficult I think those particular checks are. So in this case, we use three skill checks for every single player. There's a perception check, an acrobatics check, and an athletics check. Basically, perception to try to see, like, the avalanche is coming, where's the best way to, like, avoid it. The acrobatics check is basically you trying to avoid it, and the athletics check is trying to avoid being, like, knocked around by it. Uh, it does mention if you're proficient in nature or survival, you have advantage on all checks. I don't know if I'll include that or, or not, but maybe... Um, and in this case, if you make all three successes, you can you essentially don't suffer any penalties. You're free and clear. If you make two successes, you take 1d10 bludgeoning damage, but nothing else happens. You, you take a little bit of battered damage as you uh, escape. If you only make one success, then you, are you take 2d10 bludgeoning damage and you're partially buried. And if you fail every single check... Then you are swept away, you take 3d10 bludgeoning damage, and you are buried under the snow. Now, this includes rules where if you're partially buried, uh, you can try and free yourself uh, by using an athletics check. However, there's no like penalty if you're buried. Um, and in this case, or if you're partially restrained. And if you're buried, oops, roll down too fast. Um, you're blinded and restrained and must make a con saving throw at the end of each minute, suffering one level of exhaustion on a failure. Uh, which to me would be like, here's how I've done it. Um, someone who's not partially buried, and I would just say if you're partially buried, you can free yourself eventually. There's no check there, whatever. However, if you're fully buried, um, then someone who's not partially buried can locate the buried person with a perception check and pull them out with an athletics check. And if those checks fail, the buried person must make a con save or suffer a level of exhaustion before they're pulled out. So, and again, I don't want to have to, you know, make you, oh, okay, do this again and suffer another level of exhaustion. It's like, no, it's just, again, if you succeed, you pull them out without having to suffer another penalty. But if you fail, um, then they suffer. And I don't know, maybe having two checks is too much with perception and athletics. Um, maybe I just choose one or the other. And you can play around with the DCs to try and make some of those more challenging or not. But I thought, and maybe that's too much insult to injury, the fact that they get buried and you've already taken 3d10 and now you're going to have to have somebody help you or you suffer more damage. But this makes avalanches a lot more scary and it creates some interesting um, ways for players to like, oh, do I want to use an inspiration here? But then there's more checks coming, um, you know, and, and some of them, it's going to be all kinds of different da uh, damage depending on how players rolled. And I would like to do it where, you know, everybody first makes perception and then I record everybody's successes and they don't know what the DCs are. And then everybody makes the acrobatics as it slams into them. And then they again have to make those checks and then I record successes or failures. And then everybody has to make the athletics check. And I've got it written where I was going to have it if they roll. So, and here's here's how I'm balancing it. And again, I'm, I'm very much willing to hear feedback on this. The perception check will be a DC 10. It's not hard to see an avalanche coming, but it might be a little bit challenging to try and see, okay, what's the best way to try to, you know, avoid this. So that's going to be an easy check, DC 10. If they roll a 20 or higher on their perception check, then they will get advantage on the next check, which is the acrobatics check. That one is going to be a DC 13 because that's a little trickier to try to, you know, dance out of the way and avoid uh, this fucking avalanche coming down at you. And again, if you roll a 20 or higher on this one, then you've really avoided the worst of it and you gain advantage on the third check, which is a DC 15 athletics check. So notice I'm making it progressively harder, um, which that one you're trying to like basically hold on to something as it kind of crashes down no matter where you've ended up um, to avoid being like swept away by it. So DC 10 perception, DC 13 acrobatics, DC 15 athletics check. But if you roll really well on some of the first ones, you can gain advantage on the next ones. That's kind of how I'm flavoring it. And then 
I am keeping the partially buried and buried thing, but I'm basically saying there's no real penalty to being partially buried other than you can't be the one to help somebody who's buried because you're trying to get yourself out of the situation. And if everybody ends up either partially buried or buried, that means the buried people would automa they'd automatically have to make that con save or take a level of exhaustion before the other people can basically uh, rescue them. And I think I would keep it a DC 10 uh, con save for the exhaustion. So that's my plans for the avalanche as a skill challenge. It's kind of a, I don't know if it's even a proper skill, because a lot of skill challenges, they have a lot of different failures and successes, and they allow players to use different skills. In this case, I'm kind of, I'm kind of turning it into a multi-process trap, basically, where it's instead of making saving throws, uh, you get to make skill checks but you're all making the same skill checks based on what's happening at the moment. Um, now, here's the question. If somebody said, well, I want to cast this spell instead of making this check, I would probably allow that because they're still they're spending a resource at that point. That's even better than making a, a, making a check, technically. So, for example, if, uh, if Valravin says, you know, when I say everybody make an acrobatics check to avoid out of the way, if he says, can I misty step? Um, I would probably allow that, although 30 feet's not going to get you far enough away, he could technically misty step into the air, but then he's 30 feet up in the air, you know, or maybe you could go, you know, 15 feet up in the air, and then you'd have to, you know, you'd fall down and take that damage, which is technically not as bad as, I guess, this damage, but I would include that as a success in terms of this. So, you know, we kind of have to play around with a little bit, but if the players wanted to be more proactive about, well, can I do this or can I do that? Then I would probably, uh, yeah, Nathan, you're on the same boat. <laughs> um, yes, there obviously is a bit of a chat uh, delay on the chat uh, for me, but yes, that's what I'm going over. Um, then yes, I would allow them to do that because that's that's what D and D is. You're you want your players to come up with all these cool, crazy schemes and uh, you know use their tools that they have available to them, and especially if they're expending resources to do it, then absolutely you should let them do it. In this case, spending a resource is even better for me than just making a skill check because that's you know one less spell slot you've got, for example. I think that's the only one I can think of that would be able to uh, escape like that because I believe for Thimbleweed Swarm to work, uh, I think he has to attack in terms of being able to have his swarm move him out of the way. So in terms of anticipating what players are going to be able to do, I mean, you can't entangle the avalanche. I'm trying to look through their spell. Um, let's see what Edmund can do, which I guess I could turn the uh, DM's guild window off and go back to roll 20. Uh, let's see. Grease. No, that's not going to work. Grease the avalanche. I don't think the monk has anything at this point that she can do. Um, I don't believe so. So yeah, I don't think they've got... The only one I can think of is if Val Robin wants to use his... Attack the avalanche. <laughs> uh, what else are you going to do? <laughs> um... So yeah, I would absolutely allow that because, again, you're expending a resource. You can use that as an auto-success. But in this case of Misty Step, 30 feet is not going to be enough to avoid it unless you're going in literally into the air. There's nothing that says you have to end up on the ground on Misty Step. Just a point you can see. So I would have to tell him, you would have to Misty Step. Unless I wanted to say, maybe if he rolled really well on his perception or something, he could Misty Step up into a, you know, a rock or something. It'd, it'd really depend on... You know, I may, maybe make him roll a perception check, although everybody's already rolling perception for that first round. Um, so maybe based on that perception check, I would allow him to see something that wouldn't be, you know, literally have to go up in the air that he could teleport to within 30 feet. But, I mean, there's no way to otherwise avoid the avalanche. And that would just count as one success, and then he'd still have to make, um, you know, another success for the third one. So that wouldn't be like you'd have to, it would be an automatic get-out-of-jail-free card. Which one does Step of the Wind do? Is that the one that gives you your jump speed or your tripling your jump? Ah, oh, you got that one. Maybe you don't. Let's see, step on the wind. No results found. Oops, I guess I don't have it right. Search for monk. Monk. 
classes. Is this the right one? I don't know about Step on the Wind. Where do you get that? Unarmored key. Deflect missiles. Slow fall. Where is Step? Uh, hmm. An ability they have right off the bat. Martial arts. Strike. Key points. Flurry of blows. Patient defense. Step of the wind. That's what I meant to say. You spend one key point to take disengage or dash as a bonus action, and your jump distance is doubled for the turn. Um. I mean, I would rule that if you want to spend a key point to double your jump, but well, keep in mind her, her strength isn't good. Um, double or jump just you know, I would I'd say, okay, you gain advantage on the, you know, acrobatics check or something. That's pretty easy to rule, I think, right there. Uh, but again, you're, <laughs> these people aren't going to be able to jump, you know, 10 feet or 20 feet or even, you know, 40 feet to avoid this avalanche. This thing is hundreds of feet across. Uh, so at best, you're getting, you know, advantage on these rolls. I don't know if this actually, yeah, this is not to scale. <laughs> these are just five foot grids. So we've got uh, the owl bear, which I'm like I'm liking the idea of forcing that into a fight with the dogs, although probably not a fight to the death. I would think the owl bear would eventually retreat. Um, the mountain goats, you know, meant to be just a. If anything, hey ranger, do you want to talk to these goats? Um, and then the avalanche is meant to be this kind of complex multi-step uh, trap encounter where they're basically going to take damage unless everybody rolls really well on all their different skills. But the nice thing is because it involves a lot of different skills, most likely, unless the dicer is really good, you're not going to make all of these different ones. You have to make perception, acrobatics, and athletics. Which, um, boy, and I've looked at this party. They're not good at perception, at the very least. So that should fuck up a lot of them. <laughs> Which, you know, D10 can be pretty nasty on some of this damage, too. And then we get to the Fallen Climber. So I presume this is going to be probably as far as we make it on tomorrow's session. Because we've got, you know, getting to the mountain. We've got, which is going to be that survival check or possible exhaustion. We've got the base camp, which is going to be an owlbear fight, which fights always take a while. Um... We've got the goats, which could be a funny thing or could be nothing. The avalanche is going to take a little bit of time. And then the fallen climber, which is also a battle. And in this case, they find their first member of this expedition, which is the actual guide, which is Garrett. Um, and this one I'm pretty much running closely to what's written in here. Where he's been injured. Um, in fact, I think he's unconscious. Yeah, or barely conscious, it says. A humanoid in blood-stained, cold-weather clothing. The figure in the score is Garrett Velrin. Um, he's a scout. One level of exhaustion and six hit points remaining. In addition to his weapons, he carries a climber's kit. His other equipment is lost. And the dog actually will... So that's interesting. If they save the dog, the dog will come up to Garrett and immediately start, like, helping him. Um, and then... Yeah, if the characters tend to his wounds, Garrett comes around and tells them that a Yeti surprised them and his companions higher up the mountain. He lured the Yeti away from the others and got it to chase him down the mountain. The Yeti wounded him seriously, but he escaped with his life, and the monster stopped following him. Um, and then as the Garrett's, as the characters tend to Garrett, two crag cats move to within 20 feet of the party and attack, each one pouncing on a randomly determined party member. Uh, the crag cats caught Garrett's scent, but failed to reach him before the character showed up. Characters with a passive perception of 17 or higher are not surprised. So what's interesting here is the game basically telling you don't roll for stealth, just take 10, because their I believe their stealth is a plus 7. Yeah. And uh, just count that as their stealth check, which I'm not opposed to doing. Um, and then you can have these crag cats attack the players. Now, these are only CR1, but they are hilariously large. Uh, large monstrosities, and again, similar to the owl bears, where they're not animals, even though they look like they're fucking animals, but they're like just giant man eaters that are not meant to be like normal beasts. Um, unlike owl bear, they don't have first of all near the hit points. They're only CR one, and they do not have multi attack, which is a big deal. The only way they can multi attack is if they get their pounce off, which most likely they're only going to get that off in that first round because. You know, once they've engaged, they're probably just going to take too much damage from, uh, you know, tax opportunity and things. You never want to take the disengage action as a DM, I feel like, uh, unless you're retreating. 
but if they attack somebody with the pounce, um, they force a DC 13 saving throw and knock them prone, and then they can make a bite attack as a bonus action. So the thing here is they're very good at stealth attacks, and nobody in this party has nearly enough of a passive perception. As I just mentioned, the party is pretty garbage at perception. We've got like 10s, 11s. I think Edmund is weirdly might be the highest perception at like four, yeah, 14. So I am going to be getting a surprise round with these crag cats. Now two uh, is not nearly enough. <laughs> uh, my player's level three. Yes, they've been softened up. And this is another chance to soften them up. So the big question I'm asking all of you is how many crag cats do I want to have in this fight? Two does not seem like nearly enough for CR1s. I do have a map. I got this one off Reddit, I believe, um, which looks kind of like a mountain climb map. I'm not too enthusiastic about it. So, and Anubis, I will check the ones that you've been sending. Um, if any of you have any pointers for good mountain-looking maps, but this is kind of what I've got so far. Uh, there's Garrett. I took this from, again, one of those subscriptions that came. This is like from Xanathar's or something. Uh, and then I've got these crack cats. Once I started adding to the map, though, I was like, oh, shit, these guys are hilariously huge. So I don't know if I actually want to use uh, this mini because, like, physically, they just take up so much space on the map. And, I'm, and I want to, you know, make it so, like, these are tight uh, mountain paths that we're going on. Like, there's not a lot of, you know, room to maneuver, and that's part of the challenge. You can see this is kind of the way dynamic lighting works. It's almost like a switchback right here that they find uh, the fallen climber on. Or, again, I could use a, a different map for sure. Yeah, Anubis, and that's why I've got five here. I was thinking one for each party member. Um, and I think this would be another case of... Um, I don't think these crag cats would fight to the death either. Like, it, it, it's one of those where I think if there were fewer... I don't know if it actually says that in the text or not. Uh, oh, yeah, if one crag cat dies, the other one disengages from melee combat and tries to flee down the mountain on its next turn. So in this case, I would flavor it, you know, as half. If half the mountain, if half the crag cats go down, then they would retreat. So that would help speed things up quite a bit. And I think it's really just going to be that opening attack is going to be really nasty because, you know, if they get that surprise round and they're stealthy, that means they have advantage. They do that pounce. Um, they're probably going to hit with that attack. And then if somebody fails the strength save, they also get to do the bite attack. And then that was all a surprise round. So that'll be a big, scary thing. But then once the players start rallying and actually fighting them, you know, they've only got a 13 armor class. The average hit points at 34. Even though they look scary, they're actually not that scary. Um, we can roll for hit points, though. We always like doing that. Big question is whether you think your party will actually fight the Yetis later. If you think they all will play, it would be nice, then you can crank this encounter. I mean, that's for them to decide. I just give them problems. <laughs> My players, what's funny is it's impossible not to meta-knowledge the Yetis, uh, and they know how fucking scary Yetis are. And for those of you that watched their Storm King's Thunder campaign, Chris unleashed Yetis on us as a random encounter that he just literally pulled out of his ass. He was like, oh yeah, and there's monstrosities coming at you. Um, not knowing how strong they were. And we were level 4 at the time, and they almost, like, TPK'd us. Like, it was real bad. We had to, like, play around with, like, oh, fire, and the Yeti's, like, back off. You know, it was a lot of unmechanical stuff with that, just so we wouldn't kill us in this random encounter. Uh, that one was also funny because uh, a Yeti had disadvantage on me and still critted me, I believe, twice, which the odds of that happening are insane. My character went down. One, two, three... Four, five, five hit points. Ah, ah, ah. Crack cat number one is a 40 cats. Number two is completely average. Number three is the alpha male, 42. Or mama cat. This one is a little bit runty at 26. It probably averages out to... Even across the board, I think, in fact, you might say that 34 is their average hit point. So I'm liking the idea of having a bunch here, but with the caveat that they will retreat if too many of them fall, which, which might be that first round. Like, they get the surprise round off, the players immediately start rattling, uh, rallying and start taking them down, and then, like, the next turn, the cats will be like, oh, shit, we need to back off. That could definitely happen. A 
probably grab down characters and run too. Whoo! <laughs> Maybe. I guess you'd have to. I don't know if they can do that. You'd have to grapple them, so you'd use one of their attacks to grapple, and then you'd run, but they would have half their movement. I mean, mechanically, if you want them to grab and run, there's there's some steps involved there. It's interesting they have a climb speed, so they could actually just climb up the cliff mountain. What I'd like to do is play around with them, like, really surrounding the players here, too, because the players obviously want to rush to help, you know, Garrett. Uh, and then I could have, you know, I've got them on the map right now, and again, I, I may change, there's a good chance I'll change this map. Um, but I could have, like, more of them, you know, appear from down here and really just completely surround the players or, you know, back here in some way. Because with that stealth check, I mean, this is their mountain. Like, they should absolutely just surround the players and get off that alpha strike. Uh, the red dots are to designate uh, which cat is which. So that way the players don't say, I'm attacking the one to the northeast of you. You can just say, I'm attacking cat number two. That's something we figured out into Annihilation. It works really, really well for our party just for pure organization in terms of when the players call out attacks with a lot of enemies that look the same, um, numbering them just helps a bunch. You say, um, you know, Cat 4 is going to attack you. <laughs> you know, it's it just makes it easy. And I think that's as far as we're going to get. Like I said, this is, we, we may not actually, depending on how long those earlier fights and those scenes were earlier, we may not even make it to this fight. Um, if we do, then this will probably be the last thing that we do uh, in tomorrow's session. And then we can plan on prepping, um, you know, Garrett will obviously, and Garrett will have a lot of information. He'll be able to really, you know, they've got information from the journal in the base camp. They got information maybe from the mountain goats. And then uh, if they, assuming they can revive Garrett a bit, they can learn everything that essentially happened that he knows, which we need to talk about some story stuff. Unfortunately, I don't have time right now because we're pretty much reached the end of this stream. But in terms of, my idea was Dazan hired this adventuring party to go up to Kelvin's Cairn so that he could search using maybe some kind of magical telescope that he had or something and look for, you know, any sign of, um, of Aetherin because the Arcane Brotherhood has learned that there's something here. You know, Valish Gaunt had found something and they're looking for, um, you know, what's going on here. They've learned about the Shardalan. Essentially, the, the Arcane Brotherhood knows what's going on, and it's stuff that the players will eventually start learning. And what I'd like to do is kind of tease that without the players. And, and the idea is Dazan found the Lost Spire of Netheril. He found that location. He, he, uh, how he escaped from this predicament, I'm not sure. He used some kind of magic, maybe to just leave the rest of the party behind. Essentially made it all the way to the top, kind of fucked everybody else over. And maybe used, you know, Fly or something he cast to get out of here. Um, you know, just wanted the, essentially wanted the protection to make it up here and then made it to, uh, the Lost Spire of Netheril that he saw. And I would love to be able to tease that that's what happened without the players then finding the Lost Spire of Netheril, even though I want them to find it eventually. So I'm trying to grapple with how do I, because my problem is if I introduce the, if I go to the top and they look through the telescope or whatever that Dazan used and see the Lost Spire of Netheril, they're going to want to fucking go there. Like they're going to be like, oh, this is how you continue this quest chain. And I'm not necessarily wanting them to go there yet. I would rather them go there as part of the Act 2, like, hey, start looking up the Arcane Brotherhood stuff. The problem is I need a way to um, do that. <laughs> and I haven't figured that out yet. So I'm still working on how to introduce the fact that that's what happened here. And, you know, I could have it where they find the telescope somewhere else, but then I don't want them to have to go back up the mountain. Like, that would just be a pain in the butt. So I'll need to figure out some way of introducing that in the story, and that's going to be partly what I'll be working on. But I think that will uh, do it for this week's... No, I came down to spy! No, you don't get to spy. You are not welcome here. That's what I said in the beginning. Bray. Uh, so thank you. F no, no, what are you doing? Uh, yes, for joining me for Crafting Icewind Dale. If you enjoy the content... Please check out patreon.com slash roguewatson. Shouts to Platinum Patrons, Joe, Will, Time Dancer, Manuel, Wizard, Princess, Christopher, Thomas, Captain Mike, Adam, Aiden, Instant, Luz, Smog, Roger, Stan, and Nathan. And Gold Patrons, RPG, Papercrafts, Charming Grenade, Pretty Boy, and Yuma, Marcos, David, Vicente, Gilberto, Dead Lizard, Lounge, Sam, Ross, Lumpy Spuds, Drone, Fatboy, Six Foot Nines, Cleaning Nick, Party Mick, Butterpants, Blood, Angel, Veronis, Baboon, Baboon, Sean, AK, Sir, To Be Nathan, and Fast Like Tortoise. I will see you all tomorrow night for D&D.